there's a great vastness of vision that flows out of the Buddha's enlightenment. He spoke of beings wandering for countless lifetimes. He spoke of many planes of existence, lower planes and higher ones. He spoke of countless world systems. He spoke of great, endless immensities of time. And at the heart of this vastness of vision, at the heart of it all, is the possibility of awakening. Awakening from ignorance, awakening from delusion. Awakening from this round of rebirth, of samsara. Most of us probably have not traveled through the different realms, through the vast immensities of time consciously, traveled through other realms. But for all of us, for all of us, there is always the possibility, right here and now, of opening to freedom. This becomes our Dharma journey. This is the true vastness of the Dharma journey. To look into our minds, look into our hearts and see what are the causes of suffering on the deepest and most profound levels. And right in the midst of that understanding, of that insight, what is the possibility of freedom for us? All of the Buddhist traditions converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. So the teaching is very clear on this point. The Buddha expressed it often in the different suttas, in the different traditions. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, namely liberation through non-clinging. He said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. You know, centuries later, the Indian adept Talopa was instructing his disciple Naropa, who in turn was the grandfather of you know, the Tibetan lineage of Marpa and Milarepa down to the present. Talopa said, you are not fettered by appearances. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachment. It's always the same message. It's freedom, liberation, awakening through non-clinging, through letting go of attachment. And this is not some state to imagine, you know, in the far-off future. Well, maybe I'll move into the forest refuge for 25 years and then someday I'll realize non-clinging. Non-clinging is our practice moment to moment. This is what we're doing. And all the techniques, all the methods, all the teachings really serve this end. It's the mind of no clinging, the mind of no craving, the mind of no holding, no fixation. 
know, as you have experienced so clearly you know, in your practice, our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation, regardless of what particular experience is happening, the practice of liberation is always the same. There's one reminder which, if you can let in, will save you endless dukkha. And that is, we are not practicing in order to have some better experience. However wonderful, you know, however enjoyable we imagine it might be, that we're not practicing for some other experience. We're practicing for what the Buddha called the heart's release. We're practicing for that freedom which is the non-grasping mind. So how can we accomplish this? How can we actually practice it? One way of habituating the mind to non-clinging, to non-grasping, to that place of ease, is through a deepening and increasingly intimate understanding of impermanence. You know, we've heard this countless, countless times. When we look out in the world or into our inner world, we see that on every level of experience, whether the most macroscopic or the most microscopic, on every level, we can see and understand that things are changing. You know, the changes of birth and death of stars, of galaxies, down to the energy movements of subatomic particles. You know, if we just take the extremes, we see that everything is changing, and of course everything in between as well. You know, all the changes of nature, the changes of weather, every two minutes, the changes in the conditions in the world, you know, the, the rise and fall of civilizations, of cultures, the changes in our relationships, the changes we experience in our work lives, in our families, the very obvious changes of our, of our minds and bodies. This is just the nature of things. But for some very odd reason, we resist seeing this. We resist accepting it. I had one friend who just the other night in a phone conversation said, I don't like change. Well, that's a bad thing not to like, <laughs> given that it's the truth of everything. You know, some years ago, I was out west teaching in this wilderness ranch in New Mexico, and after the retreat, was went for a hike, and I had this like, hiking accident, and I slipped, and I 
uh, hurt my knee, and it was really bad. You know, by the end of the Dharma talk that I gave that evening, I couldn't stand. I couldn't put any weight on. So, you know, I had to be carried back to my room, and my mind went in two different directions. That night, I was up all night, you know, just with with the pain. One direction was self-recrimination. You know, how could I be so careless? If I had been more mindful, I wouldn't have slept. And just on and on. What am I going to do for my travels the whole rest of the summer? And, and then the other direction, which fortunately in the end won out, things change. Conditions change. That's just how it is. And I came up with this mantra that has really helped me a lot over the years since. Anything can happen anytime. It's just anything can happen anytime. Now, sometimes people hear that and they feel, well, that's a little depressing. <laughs> you know, anything can happen anytime. What disaster is around the corner? But I actually find it not at all depressing. I find it exactly the opposite. Because as I remind myself of that, anything can happen anytime. I find my mind letting go of attachment, letting go of clinging, letting go of expectation. And in that, there's a tremendous sense of ease. It's only our thinking that we know what's going to happen. You know, we're getting attached to our hopes, getting attached to our fears. That's where the problem is. Things are going to change one way or another, and it's not a mistake. It's just how things are. One of the most striking and amazing aspects of our delusion, and this is a pervasive it's, it's like mass delusion that even though as we look back at our past experience, whether it's years ago or to the last moment, when we look back, we see the dreamlike quality of everything. Now, where is it now? Where is your experience of yesterday? You know, well, last month or the last moment. When we look back, this becomes so obvious to us. You know, this dreamlike quality. And yet, when we look ahead, we look ahead with anticipation as if some next experience is going to satisfy us, is going to fulfill all our longing. And so we put all our energy into the next whatever. You know, the next vacation, or the next relationship, or the next meal or the next sitting, or the next breath. But the next whatever is going to be no more satisfying than the infinite number of past whatevers. And we know that. That's what's so amazing about the power of this delusion. It's not a mystery. But somehow our minds, it, they don't make the connection. And so we keep leaning forward, you know, in anticipation of the next hit. The more we focus our attention 
not intellectually, but through our direct, intimate experience of this truth of change, of the flow of changes, the more we are right in that current, it's like the current of a river, or water over a waterfall, the more we're actually right in it and aware of it, and seeing the endless passing away of phenomena. You know, sensations of thoughts, of feelings, of sights, of sounds, of conditions, of everything. The more we are in it, and see it, and feel it, the less we hold on, the less we grasp, the less we're attached. This is not a trivial insight. And the Buddha spoke very powerfully to the importance of our practicing this understanding. It's not difficult to see. That's what's so strange. You know, it's not some subtle thing that, you know, we need special instruments to see. It's right here in every moment. The Buddha spoke very directly to the importance of directing our attention to this truth, to this insight. He said that it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary rise and fall of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. To me, that is a most striking statement. Because what does that say about our values in life? of what we're going for in life. Saying it's more valuable to see this momentariness of phenomena for a single day than to live a hundred years doing whatever other great things we might do. Why? Because it's through the seeing of it, and again, not conceptually, because we all know conceptually that things change. It's through that direct seeing, the feeling, the being it, to that level of intimacy with the truth of change, it opens up the doorway to genuine freedom, to genuine non-clinging, non-grasping, letting go. So this is a powerful change of perspective you know, for our lives in the world. Just as another reinforcement of how important this is, at one point Ananda, you know, the Buddha's attendant and his cousin, very beloved monk, he was recounting you know, to the Buddha the many wonderful qualities of the Buddha, of which, you know, infinite number. And the Buddha replied to him. Just, you know, as Ananda was listing all these wonderful qualities of, you know, his great presence and his wisdom and his compassion and his power and all of that, he said, that being so, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata, of himself. That is, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, 
as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Oh, we can do that. You know, we can share that wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. Seeing feelings, thoughts, perceptions arise, being present, disappearing. It's not insignificant. So in our practice, we want to be attentive not only to what it is that arises, you know, which is the first step in mindfulness, to note what it is, but also to pay attention to what happens to that particular experience. So that we're focusing our attention, we're developing that insight directly to seeing the changing nature of whatever it is that has arisen. Seeing thoughts arise and disappear, feelings, sensations. One breath follows the other. You know, the flow of sensation in movement. Every object at every sense door is revealing this truth of change. So at any moment, we can open to that, we can see that. And as you are attuning to this truth of impermanence, of change, notice the quality of your mind. And this is what gets very interesting, because we see that in the very moment that our mind is aware of the changing nature, and don't believe what I'm going to say, but please check it out for yourself. My experience has been that in the moment when I'm aware of the changing nature, the mind is free of grasping. And so we get a very immediate feedback, and we get a very immediate reinforcement, recognition of what the mind is like when it's free of clinging. So it's not some far-off abstraction. It's right there in the moment. The Buddha gave very explicit instructions for the realization of freedom, of liberation. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that whatever feelings arise through any of the sense doors, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. So here it is, the Buddha is talking right from where we are, just abiding the impermanence of the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, they arise and pass away. 
and through that very contemplation of something that's right here, you know, before us, leads all the way to Nibbana, to the highest, to the highest freedom. So everything we do, all the practices we do, you know, whether you're working with a primary object or whether working with mental noting or working with choiceless awareness, all of the various practices and methods that we do, all are in the service of this end. They are in the service of the mind that is not clinging. In case we still don't get it. <laughs> For some reason, we've heard this a lot, but the mind somehow <laughs> is slow. So the Buddha went on out of great compassion. He said, well, in case you still don't get it. He didn't say that, but <laughs> that's the basic implication. He said, well, these are the areas where you habitually do cling. Right? And so he's just highlighting them for us. He's illuminating those arenas where we should really pay attention because these are the arenas where we get attached. The most obvious one is clinging to pleasant sense objects. You know, we like it when things are pleasant. How often have you kind of reflected on your sitting, you come in and you sit and it's pleasant, calm, peaceful, nice light vibrations, no pain. You know, you sit for an hour, two hours, three hours. Oh, that was a good sitting. You know, you come in and you sit and your knees hurt and your back hurts and you're restless. Oh, that was not such a good sitting. That was terrible. We're continually evaluating our sitting in terms of pleasure and pain. And the mind goes to what's pleasant. It likes what's pleasant. This is our conditioning. It's deep. It's very deep in all of us. We like pleasant body sensations. We like pleasant thoughts. We like pleasant emotions. Sights. Pleasant sounds. Pleasant tastes. We like being lost in reverie. You know, it's great. You come in, sit down, and the mind just gets caught on some you know, pleasant thought. Hmm. An hour later, you know, the hour went fast. It was really a pleasant way to spend an hour. We enjoy that. What's particularly strange is we get a certain delight even being lost in thoughts or feelings that are unpleasant. Now, somehow, there's this dubious pleasure of being distracted. As long as we're distracted, even if it's something unpleasant, you know, we get, we get attached to it. An image that I've used in my practice, which helps me keep an eye out for the mind getting lost in or going down the road you know, of different pleasant experience 
Sometimes I think of it, I'm going along, you know, the, the, the energy of the practice is, is rolling along. It's like being going down a highway and then periodically seeing these big billboards, these exit signs, you know, advertising some amusement park. And we all have our own amusement parks. You know, it could be some sexual fantasy. It could be some plan, you know, that you're just going over and over again. It could be something from the past, some memory, something. You know, we each have our own, and we have many of them. So going along, see this big exit sign, take the exit, go down the road, and then at some point, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, we kind of wake up, realize where we are, get back on the highway. Okay, with a little more practice, a little more clarity, a little more mindfulness, going down the road, see the sign, get off the exit, but we see more quickly. You know, we don't have to get so embroiled and we get back on the highway. When the mind is really clear, we're going along the road, we see the sign, and then under the sign we read something you know, that's in a little smaller print, but when our mindfulness is clear, we see it, and the sign says, dead end. Dead end. Oh yeah, this is just a dead end. I don't even have to get off, you know, and we just stay undistracted. Find the note dead end really helpful because it's a reminder that all of these allurements, is that a word? <laughs> all, of, all of these alluring things, it's just a dead end. They're not going anyplace. It's just going to be some distraction for some period of time and then getting back on the highway. Well, why go down that road in the first place? So this is one area of attachment, of clinging, that when we see more and more clearly, we can decondition that habit, that tendency. At least not get lost so often. As we investigate our attachment to sense pleasure, sense objects, it really reveals a lot about the nature of our mind and the power of addiction, the power of craving, the power of wanting. Often we become attached to pleasant sense objects because we're staying on a superficial level of understanding and we're not seeing that what we're really after is the pleasant feeling associated with that object. Now, if we're focused mostly on the object itself, the object it has a certain solidity, substantiality to it, and we, we get lost in the delusion, oh yes, if I have this object of experience, you know, that will be satisfying in some way. But it's very interesting to just take it down a level, if we can be mindful enough, and to see that it's not really the object that we want. What we're really after is the pleasant feeling associated with it, either in the moment or an anticipated pleasant feeling. Now what happens when we remember that that it's the pleasant feeling we're after, but it's not the thing in itself. It's easier 
to see and to remember the fleeting nature of the pleasant feeling. And I see this all the time, especially you know, on retreat, when the thought comes, oh, I'd like a cup of tea. Yeah, it's pretty minor, pretty minor, but it serves as an example, because when my mind focuses on the cup of tea, I think, yeah, if I have the cup of tea, it'll make me happy. <laughs> but when I remember, really all I want is this, just a certain, the certain pleasantness, pleasant feelings come, then it's easier to remember, to recollect. That pleasant feeling is, it will last about four and a half seconds. You know, and why should I take 15 minutes you know, to, to go for that? when the feeling itself is so transitory. So again, it's focusing in on the level that's really motivating us. So there's clinging or attachment to pleasant sense experience, perhaps even more relevant for your experience here is the attachment we have to pleasant meditative states. Now this goes very deep and it's a much stronger attachment once people have experienced the pleasure of a concentrated mind, of a calm mind, of a still mind, of the body being open, the body being light. It's a very deeply conditioned uh, attachment those states. We start practicing for them. You know, and all different of the what could be called factors of enlightenment, like concentration, like calm, like rapture, at a certain point can be transformed into what are called corruptions of insight. Not because these factors are a problem, they they serve us, but it's because we get attached to them. Now in Dzogchen, it's the same in all the traditions, it's it's exactly the same caution. They talk, in the Dzogchen tradition, they refer to the attachments that conform to bliss, to clarity, to non-thought. And here we practice, we put in all this energy, and yeah, finally we get some bliss. Uh, we get the mind gets clear, and there's no thinking, or very little thinking. Great. I got it. And yet the teachings say, cut through that as well. Because those also are conditioned states. There can be an attachment, a compelling fascination with the unfolding process itself, you know, the unwinding nature. Now, if you have the experience where you're sitting and you're really in this process of tensions and knots, and whether physical or psychological or emotional, you're in the process of them unwinding, which is what happens. That, that is exactly what happens in the practice. But instead of simply being aware of it happening, the mind gets attached to outcome. 
you know, and so we find ourselves leaning into the process. You know, we're with this sensation in order for it to release. We're with this experience so that it can open. We're with this emotion so that we can, whatever, purify it, cathart. And we miss the point. Liberation through non-clinging. It's not that we're practicing in order to get to some new experience. We're practicing the mind that is not clinging to whatever is arising. And so this leads to one of my favorite mantras. And the grammatical construction is a little awkward, so you have to really pay attention. It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. And so we don't have to wait for the next big experience not to cling. It's not that we're practicing to get to some place and then I'll not cling. It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. So we might as well not cling now. Don't postpone it. Now, one one teaching describes enlightenment as short moments many times. Can we practice that short moment of not clinging, of letting go, not wanting, not craving? It's that move. We just practice that. Short moments many times. Okay, so this is one arena to pay attention to. You know, our habituated attachment to pleasant sense objects, to pleasant meditative experiences. It's where we habitually get caught. Another place where we cling with very harmful consequences in our lives, we cling a lot to our views and opinions about things. We just have so many ideas and so many opinions about almost everything, even things we know nothing about. You know, it doesn't seem to stop us from having an opinion about it. This is just another kind of attachment. You get attached to being right. You know, the, the newscaster, the retired one, David Brinkley, he wrote, he wrote this book, Everyone is Entitled to My Opinion. And that's basically how we go through life. It's very instructive to see how we get caught in attachment to our particular viewpoint, our particular way of seeing things. It's very instructive, first of all, to distinguish between what we really know from what we don't know anything about. So there's a whole range of opinion that we can really easily let go of if we don't know anything about it. So that would be an easy, worthwhile thing to do. But it's also helpful to let go of our attachment to views and opinions even when we do know something about it. 
Because our attachment just closes us off to other perspectives, you know, other viewpoints. Now in Buddhism, the different traditions just talk about enlightenment in so many different ways. And great realized masters, beings who certainly seem enlightened, not talking theoretically, you know, who they look enlightened, <laughs> you know, they act enlightened, but they will say very different things about the nature of that experience. And so one of the Western dilemmas in the West is we often have the opportunity to meet teachers, these great masters from different traditions, and you know, they're saying opposite things. Well, for quite a while, it really drove me crazy. You know, if they're right, then they must be wrong. And just setting up, you know, these oppositions. And I finally came to the realization, and it's has been a tremendous help for me. Came up with another little mantra. Who knows? You know, what's the nature of the fully enlightened mind? Who knows? Maybe when we're there, we'll know. But until then, who knows? And I realized I didn't have to have an opinion about it. And the who knows was not a who knows of bewilderment. And it wasn't a who knows of confusion. It was really a who knows of openness. Just, who knows? Let's practice and see. And it was so freeing to realize I didn't have to have an opinion. I didn't have to have a view about it. And in that, it really opened me to the possibility of learning from a diverse range of views. Because I wasn't so attached to a particular one, which I really didn't know for myself anyway. So it's very helpful to take a look how we close off in our minds through attachment to view. The Buddha highlighted this. This was not, this is not a peripheral kind of attachment. You know, and when we look in the world today, we look out into the world, the tremendous, tremendous suffering that is there because of deeply held sectarian attachments this is the truth, everything else is wrong, everything else is false. You know, particularly religious views. It's the cause of huge suffering and conflict and death. So we want to see it in our own minds and let go of that attachment to view, that sectarian view. Certainly within Buddhism, all the teachings, all the words, all the systems, all the metaphysics, no matter from what angle they're coming from, are all skillful means for not clinging. That's all. They are not some ultimate statement of truth. All the teachings are simply ways to help us not to cling, because that's where the freedom is.
just as a sort of reminder to us. And of course, this is very appropriate and applicable in our relationships in the world, but it's equally as applicable to the kind of thought stories that we can get lost in. It's a piece of advice from the Zen master, I think it was 17th or 16th century, Bankai. And he said, don't side with yourself. And just notice how many of your thought forms have to do with conversations in which the mind is siding with itself. You know, it's taking one's own side. So let that be like a, a mindfulness bell, a wake-up call, attachment to view. And see if in that moment we can practice the mind of no clinging, of letting go. So there's attachment, clinging to just objects, pleasant sense objects, to meditative states, to the meditative process. This clinging and attachment to view. The deepest attachment we have, the deepest clinging, the root cause of suffering, is the attachment we have to the concept of self. You know, and I talked about this last week, of how when we look carefully, which is what our practice is here, just looking very carefully, at our experience, we see that self is a concept about an appearance. That's all the self is. It's a concept about an appearance of things. It's a designation. We use the word self as a designation for a constellation of changing elements, elements of mind and body very similar to the concept we might have or the designation of a rainbow. You you go out and after rain and maybe see a rainbow, but what is a rainbow? It's just moisture and air and light in a certain configuration and there's an appearance of a rainbow. There's nothing substantial, there's no thing in itself which is the rainbow. Rainbow is just an appearance that arises out of those elements coming together in certain ways. So self, or Joseph, or each one of us, is a similar designation. There's no thing in itself which is the self. There's just an appearance of physical elements, mental elements. It's like an appearance out of a mosaic. So we can understand this on some level. You know, maybe we have some, at least conceptual level, understanding of this. But still, for most of us, there is a deeply felt sense of self. Even if we know that it's just a concept, just a designation, it feels as if there's a someone to whom experience is happening. So what's that about? Where does this felt sense of I come from? 
when we look and investigate, we see that the felt sense of I, even if we know that it's just a concept and a designation, the felt sense of it comes in all of those moments when there is identification with some arising experience. That's where the felt sense comes from. There's the process of identifying with different elements that may arise. For example, we very commonly, extremely commonly, identify with this body. And so we take this body to be I. This is who I am. As we look more carefully, though, you know, first in a reflective way and then in a very directly experiential one, you know, if we think of the body going from newborn, you know, to young baby, to child, to adolescent, to young adult, to adult, you know, to old person, to corpse, okay, there's the whole spectrum of the transformation of the body. Well, which body is the self? You know, which one is I? continually changing. There's nothing there that we can really point to and say, yeah, that's me. That's the one who I am. I thought my hair was me. (laughs) I don't know whether you've ever seen directly or maybe pictures of an autopsy. Actually, there's a book in the library here. It's it's like graphic art of the body and of the different systems of the body. It's really, I don't suggest, you know, you do reading a lot, really, but this book would be very interesting to look at because it just shows the nature of the body. You know, and in that kind of, and in autopsy, you would see just the different organs and the bones and the skeleton, you know, all that structure. When we see the body in that way, much less likely to identify with it. You know, we see the stomach or the gallbladder or the liver. Hmm. That's me. <laughs> you know, probably not. But it's so amazing because, you know, we just wrap it all nicely in skin and we do identify with it. It's such a superficial level of perception, and yet it's the common one, you know, and we all get caught on that level. So we want to really look more closely, look more deeply. And again, this is not some morbid investigation. This is just for the purpose of seeing things as they are, and in that seeing, the mind gets less attached, less identified, the less attached it is, the less identified, the less we suffer. So it's all in the service of freedom. It's in the service of happiness, of peace. But it's so contrary to conventional way of viewing things. And that's the great power of the Buddha's teachings. We create this felt sense of I every time we're lost in the story of our thoughts. You know, we get lost in our thought forms. I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering, I'm 
we're lost, we identify, and there's this strong sense that there's someone there to whom it's happening. Mostly, we are lost in the world of our mental projections. We're just living in this. You know, cartoons, in in cartoons, there are these characters and, you know, these little thought bubbles. Well, we are like cartoon characters living in our own created thought bubbles. And it's so amazing and so liberating to see that the only power that thoughts have is the power that we give them. They have no power from their own side. They have no power in and of themselves. They're, as you've seen many times, I'm sure, you know, in those moments when we are aware and are mindful, thought arises and passes. There's not much there. And yet when we're not aware, when we are lost, creating the strong sense, felt sense of I, thoughts have this compelling, even coercive power in our lives. So this is, it's startling. It's just startling. You know, that the whole world, and our whole world, just playing out. You know, this run of conditioned thoughts. This is from one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century, really, you know, a wonderful teacher. His name was Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He said, normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. (laughs) You familiar with merciless, tormenting thoughts? (laughs) So don't undervalue those moments and the practice of really being mindful, not so much of the content of the thought, but of the fact that you're thinking. And even, I mean, when the mind's very clear, we can see it as it's arising, you know, and not be caught at all. But even if it's after the fact, even if we've been lost, and then there's that moment of awakening from being lost, 
pay attention to that moment, highlight that moment, so that you see very clearly the difference in your experience between being lost and having awakened from that. It's a very direct, immediate, clear recognition of the wakeful mind, of the nature of awareness itself. And there are countless opportunities to do that because however many times you're lost, that many times you awaken from it. So don't skip over those moments. That's illuminating something very powerful. Sarah's talk the other night, I loved the image she used. I don't know if she said punch or hit the pig on the nose. <laughs> it's just such a graphic, good image. I think we can do that with thoughts. <laughs> but the trick is not with aversion. It's not with judgment. It's not with it's even with humor. <laughs> and you see in that moment when we're not feeding, when we're not lost in it, the thought is just we see it as being this empty, ephemeral phenomenon. But when we're not mindful, we keep feeding it. It's like feeding the pig. Oh, yeah, have some more. <laughs> Come up to the breakfast table. Okay. Race through the rest. Um, there's a felt sense of I when we're identified with the body, when we're lost, identified with thoughts. Very strong felt sense of I or self when we're identified with emotions. You know, it's in some sense what we most personalize. It's difficult to really see the conditionality, the conditioned nature of emotions. Very easy to fall back into I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm depressed, I'm afraid, I'm you know, we just create this whole sense of I, this superstructure of self, on top of what in actuality are just momentarily changing conditions. So just a few ways to remind yourself of the conditionality of emotions, of the not being self. In my early years of practice, you know, it was really hard. I was my mind was not concentrated and I just went through all the hindrances that most people go through. I was in India and I would have long periods of being really depressed, you know, just about my practice, about, you know, this cosmic loneliness, just, it was all very uh, Baroque. (laughs) But I, I remember, I mean, even then I remember thinking to myself, you know, in the midst of, you know, these strong feelings, I'd remind myself, you know, Joseph, in six months you're not going to even remember that you had this feeling. Not only six months, you know, six weeks, two weeks, one week, you know, probably by tomorrow. And just that extrapolation over time, it was like a reflection on the impermanence of it. You know, it really helped me not take it so seriously, not claim it so much as being I. 
So that's one way. Another way is to really explore the conditionality, the relationship of thought to emotion, and how so often an emotion is triggered by an unnoticed thought. So just explore that. Just see how that works, because it begins to illuminate the impersonality, the non-personal nature of emotion. It's not denying them. It's not saying they're not present. They are present. They just don't belong to anybody. They're like the rainbow. It's an appearance out of certain conditions. We identify with the body, we identify with thoughts, we identify with emotions. The, the most subtle place of identification, the place where we get most caught with the sense of self, is the identification with awareness itself. Now we might see, yeah, the body's changing, thoughts are changing, emotions are changing, but I'm the one who's knowing it all. So this is very deep. This is kind of the point around which all of our lives revolve. We have created this sense of the observer, the witness, the knower. And our practice really needs to cut through that identification as well. As I've mentioned to you, to many of you in interviews, one way that I found being very helpful to begin to cut through that identification with the knowing is to reframe our understanding of what's happening in the passive voice. So, for example, instead of I'm hearing sound, it sounds being known, like right now. Sounds are just appearing spontaneously and they're being known spontaneously. Nobody's doing anything. There's no one there. It's just a sound being known. In walking, it's just sensations being known. In the breathing, it's just the sensations of a breath being known. By framing it in that way linguistically, it takes the I out of it. It removes that subject-object duality. It's just something being known. And what's amazing is that the experience, the object is arising spontaneously. We're not doing anything to create it. And it's being known spontaneously. It's all happening by itself. There's no one there doing anything at all. And so if you can practice going through the day simply noticing this, just moment after moment, things are being known, sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts and feelings, all happening by itself. This is what in Dzogchen is referred to as undistracted non-meditation. There's nothing to do. That's the non-meditation part. Don't forget the undistracted part. It's undistracted non-meditation. 
just being there in this mystery of things being known, moment after moment, spontaneously. Liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through the direct seeing of impermanence, through the direct experience of selflessness, seeing that all experience is just empty phenomena rolling on. It's not belonging to anyone. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. Buddha summed all of this up in one very pithy teaching. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So this is the Buddha's profound instruction to us. It's not a philosophical statement. It's as if the Buddha is telling us, yes, this is the accomplishment of freedom, the accomplishment of liberation. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So this becomes our moment-to-moment practice. It's really the practice of freedom. Sit for a couple of minutes. merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.